0: We do appreciate uh, everyone's presence this morning. Glad you're here. Looks like we got a pretty good number with us today. So important that uh, we're here on the Lord's Day like this and spend a little bit of time. It doesn't take all day, you know, uh, just just a little bit of time, a few hours, uh, just uh, expressing our adoration, our devotion, our gratitude to God. Every now and then, I'll go in maybe to a fast food place or a convenience store and, and I'll buy something and I'll be at the counter and I'll pay for it and I'll get my food and no thank you is said, no thank you for your business. Obviously not Chick-fil-A, but, uh, you know. And that, that kind of rubs me the wrong way. I don't know if it rubs you the wrong way or not, but it kind of rubs me the wrong way. that There's no expression of gratitude. How, how does God feel? That rubs me the wrong way. How does it make God feel when we go through life and we breathe His air, we enjoy His sunshine and all the blessings that He's given us and we never say one thank you? That's what we're doing here this morning. We're expressing our gratitude. We're saying thank you, among other things, I'm sure, but just saying thank you for the good things that you've done for us, especially the gift of His Son. So it's so important for us to be here on an occasion like this and uh, make that effort. Well, I don't have a PowerPoint today. After Andy's PowerPoint, I just knew that you know, I wasn't gonna compare, but anyway. But I do have some statistics. Uh, 81% of Americans believe in God. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? 81%, that's a, that's a, a good majority of Americans that say they believe in God, that 81%, I think that's, that's pretty good. However, in 2017, it was 87%, and from 1944 to 2011, it was 90%. So 80%, 81%, that doesn't sound all that good anymore, does it? Uh, once we compare it to what it has been, belief in God in our nation is declining. It's on the decline, and it has been for a little while. Uh, Another statistic suggests that 68% of young adults believe in God, and so as our children and grandchildren are growing growing up, uh, the fewer and fewer in their generation express belief in God. Now that might change as they get older and become more mature in, in their in their thinking. But as it stands now, 68% of young adults believe in God. Less than 25% attend, attend church once a week in the United States. Less than 25%. That's less than one in four. You might think of your neighbors and kind of test that and, well, you know, yeah, that, that's, that's, that seems about right. Less than 25%. I'll talk a little bit about the existence of God today. The Bible doesn't begin with a formal argument for the existence of God. If you were to pick up some books on theology that discuss theological subjects in sort of an organized, systematic way, the first chapter, maybe first, first or second section would include a discussion of whether or not God exists. And some proofs would be suggested. And then, Some evidence to the contrary might be dealt with as well. The Bible doesn't contain a section that sets out to prove God exists. Of course, the Bible was written to people that already believed that God exists. And so don't know that that was exactly necessary. Although I think you can find arguments for the existence of God uh, contained, embedded in the Scripture. So I want to talk a little bit about that today. Just want to mention some what are called classical proofs. For the existence of God. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on, on these or not going to present them in a real sophisticated and a complicated way. Don't know that I could do that anyway, but uh, just gonna mention a few of these. Now, by proof, we don't mean that we can prove the existence of God the same way that we can prove the existence of that table. You could measure the table, you could weigh the table, you can feel the table, and in that way you could prove that the table exists. From one point of view, it's a little bit hard to prove much of anything. It's a little bit hard to prove that we exist. How do we know that we're not characters in somebody's dream somewhere? so, So it's a little bit hard to prove the existence of much of anything, but we sure can't prove the existence of God in the same way that we can prove the existence of that table By measuring it or weighing it. This is a physical object. God, of course, is a spiritual object. But what we can do is present evidence that makes it much more likely that God exists and that is perfectly reasonable to believe and to conclude that God exists by looking at the circumstances. Kevin can tell you that most court cases are established by circumstantial evidence. And so, when somebody says, oh, that's just circumstantial evidence. Well, you know, don't, don't throw that away too quickly. Most things that we conclude are true are based on circumstance. So we look at the circumstances and then we draw the conclusion that this is what is in place or this is what ha- happened. And so let's just talk about a few of these. I don't want to spend all my time on it. That's going to be the challenge of the sermon today. Limit, limit my time on these first few uh, observations. There's what's called the cosmological argument. The argument is that everything we experience is the result of a cause and effect relationship. This building is here because somebody built it. In this case, Frank and the people that worked with him. We appreciate that a great deal. And so the building is here as a result of a cause. It's the effect of a cause. Uh, The uh, United States exists because at a certain point in time in history, some men got together and they formed a government and formed a nation. So, and so that's the result or the effect of a cause. You and I are here because we've been begotten by our parents. So, everything we experience is the result of a cause and effect relationship. The universe is here. It's obvious to us the universe is here. There must have been something that caused it to come into being and that something would be god. And that's called the cosmological argument. The second one that I want to suggest incidentally, Hebrews 3 and verse uh, 4 says that uh, every house is built by someone the builder of all things is god. So every house is built by someone there's that cause and effect the builder of all things is god. And so as I said a moment ago, uh, you can kind of find these arguments maybe stated in one form or another embedded in the scriptures somewhere. The, the next one is called the teleological argument, and uh, that has to do with uh, the complexity of things as we find them in nature, the design of things, and the purpose of things that we find in nature. So teleological is from, the Greek word means the end or the, the purpose. And so this is an argument from design and complexity and, and purpose. You know, purpose, the word purpose suggests intellect, doesn't it? You know, you did that on purpose. You, you did it deliberately. You had something in your mind that you wanted to bring about and so you purposed it. And so if something has purpose, That suggests that it's designed in order to bring about an effect. Anyway, so this is an argument from design and complexity and and purpose. If you were walking along the beach and you, you saw a watch in the sand, no one would conclude that, well, you know, as a result of millions of years of Sand rubbing together, the wind blowing the sand around, the water washing up on the beach and moving that sand around, the salt air, the sunshine, the cold. Uh, As a result of all that, this watch was produced. Now nobody would believe that. There's there's too much design. It's too complex. And, And so a reasonable person would conclude that someone made the watch for the purpose of telling time. And so all that complexity and the design and the obvious purpose suggest an intelligent being made it for a purpose. Now if that's true of a watch that you might find on the beach, how much more is that true of the human body? Think of the complexity of the human body and and the universe altogether. There's kind of a subset of this called uh, irreducible complexity, I'm not going to spend much time on it, it's a little bit complicated, but I'll try to, try to convey the idea as well as I can. The idea of irreducible, irreducible complexity is this. There are complex systems in nature, complicated systems in nature, including the human body. These systems consist of several elements, all of which must be in place and work together with the other elements for the system to produce the benefit. There's a system, has several different elements involved. They all have to be in place and they all have to work together in order to produce the benefit. If one of them is absent, or if they don't work together in the right way, well then the benefit is not not achieved. In fact, damage and harm and uh, destruction might be the result. There is no reason (laughs) to produce element A of the system by itself, or element B of the system by itself, or element C of the system by itself. A, B, C, D, and E are all needed, and all need to work together in the right way in order for the benefit to be produced. And so, just looking at the complexity of the system suggests to us, this was done on purpose, you know. There's design here, there's complexity here. can't can't be an accident. The third argument for the existence of God, incidentally Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. You look at the, you look at the heavens and uh, you consider the heavens and uh, the complexity and the design and all of that and you can see the glory of God. The ontological argument comes from a Greek word that means being, ontos, uh, ontological argument. Now this argument is based on reason. Now the other two arguments were let's look at nature, let's make an examination of nature and then draw some conclusions. This one doesn't approach the subject in that way. It begins with a definition. God is that being greater than which nothing can be imagined. Let's think about that. God is that being greater than which nothing can be imagined. That's pretty good. Pretty good definition of God, isn't it? Now... The characteristic, then, the next step in the argument the characteristic of existence must actually belong to that being since it is greater to exist than not to exist. Now, did you follow all that? (laughs) God is that being greater than which nothing can be imagined. That being must exist because to exist is greater than not to exist. So just just another argument. And then the final one we're going to suggest is the moral argument. People in every culture throughout history have had a sense of right and wrong. Everybody has a sense of right and wrong. (laughs) No matter where you live, no matter when you live, you have a sense of right and wrong. And the remarkable thing is that what is considered right and wrong is very similar from culture to culture. Now, there are differences, of course, from culture to culture, but everybody has a sense that this is right and this is wrong. This is right behavior. This is wrong behavior. And most everybody believes it's wrong to kill just indiscriminately. go around killing people would be wrong. Stealing and taking what doesn't belong to you would be considered wrong. On the other hand, being generous and kind and thoughtful and administering justice or fairness would be considered right. Where do we get this sense of right and wrong? And why is it so similar as we think about various cultures in time? All of us have a sense that of ought that sometimes stimulate us to act contrary to our inclination towards self-preservation. In other words, sometimes a person will put himself in danger, risk his own life, for the good of someone else. And he feels like he ought to do it. Now, really ought to do something. Where do you get that sense of ought? It can't just be a natural thing because naturally we want to preserve ourselves and I'm willing to risk my life to save someone else. I might might not even know that other person. Where did it come from? Well, it came from God. Well, just to make a few observations about these. You know, people have a natural tendency to believe in something greater than the human race. Idolaters believe in something greater than the human race. You know, even skeptics have an idea of that thing of which they're skeptical, <laughs> you know. They have an idea about what God is. So so most of every day they might convince themselves that he doesn't exist, but at least he has an idea of what he thinks doesn't exist. So all of us I have a natural tendency to believe in something greater than ourselves. And again, some convince themselves that that greater being, God, doesn't exist. But there's good evidence that He does. There's good evidence that He does. Some of the proofs are more convincing than others. You know, we'd all acknowledge that. You might think that ontological argument, that didn't make any sense at all to me. Some proofs are more convincing than others. In fact, all of them have been critiqued and uh, been rejected. Uh, But taken together, take all of them together, provides good evidence that God exists. Remember we talked about proof and circumstances and drawing conclusions and things like that? Take all those together, it's good evidence that God exists. And then the the last observation I'll make, not the last point in the sermon, but the last observation I'll make at this time is that we don't require absolute proof for the existence of God. There's evidence that He exists, but the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. And so we're not going to be able to prove that God exists in the same way we prove that the table exists nor should we be expected to, nor do I require it. After all, God says, I want people to believe in me. Now, I'm going to give them good reason to believe in me, but they're going to have to take that step and put their trust and faith in me and believe in me. Hebrews 11, verse 6, you remember this passage. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he comes to God, must believe that he is. But He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. And so we believe that God, that's what God wants from us. He wants us to believe in Him. See, we don't walk by sight. That's what some people want. I think they want to be able to walk by sight. I want you to prove to me that God exists in the same way you can prove to me that the table exists. No, it's just not going to happen that way. Because God wants us to put our faith in Him, believe that He is. he's the rewarder of those who seek him. Well, you might imagine that there are some responses to these and uh, there are arguments against the existence of God. Here are a few, what I call the naturalist argument. The, The argument goes something like this. Religion and faith are really relics of a bygone era. See, there was a time in human history when we didn't really understand the natural world around us. We didn't understand the thunderstorm. We didn't understand why the sun comes up in the east and goes down in the west. And we didn't understand why the moon goes through its various phases. We didn't really understand all that. And so what we did was we we posited, we suggested that there are gods out there, maybe a god out there that controls all these things that we don't understand. But you see, now we understand these things better, so we don't need to believe in God anymore. And so that's, that's one approach to that. Of course, I would go back, yeah, but if you look at the natural world carefully, you can see the complexity and the design and so forth. Another argument against the existence of God is what I call the bad religion argument. And then it goes something like this, you know, religion is responsible for so much bad and so much evil in the world, and uh, religious people, people who claim to be people of faith, have done just absolutely horrible things. And if that's what religion's all about, I don't want anything to do with it. Well, I'd say you know I I join hands with you on the bad religion position. You know I, I'm against bad religion as well. Yeah, bad religion. Yeah, bad religion is responsible for a lot of bad things in the world. I say anything about genuine and true faith. But people make that argument. And then probably the most effective argument in the atheist arsenal is the evil and tragedy argument. If God existed, surely He would prevent terrible things from happening. Since terrible things continue to happen, there there must be no God. That's that's been around a long time. Uh, And uh, will probably continue to be around a long time. And it's been very effective. A lot of people are influenced by that argument. And I suppose a, 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 you know, a, a good complete response would take a long time. Suffice it to say we don't live in the world that God intended. We live in a fallen world and we've brought many evil things and, and terrible things upon ourselves. And it wouldn't be right to lay these at the feet of God. Now my purpose is not really to answer all those in detail. But I want to take I want to take our thoughts now to another place. Let's suppose that the skeptic is right. Let's uh, let's just okay for the sake of argument, uh, there is no God. Okay, now now what? What if there is no God? So let's just think about the consequences or the implications of that. If there is no God, the Bible is not the Word of God. You remember the passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is familiar to most of us, I think, anyway. All scriptures inspired of God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Uh, but, but if there is no God, the Bible is not the Word of God. The Bible is not inspired of God. Now, if the Bible is the Word of God, there are certain implications. The Word of God is authoritative. The Word carries with it the same authority as the person who speaks the Word. And so the Word of God is authoritative. The Word of God is inerrant. It's, it's true. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth, John 17, verse 17. The sum of your Word is truth, 119th Psalm, verse 160. In Second Timothy chapter 2, and verse 15, we're encouraged to handle or write the Word of truth. And so the Bible claims to be the Word of God, If it's the Word of God, then it must be authoritative and it must be true. But if there is no God, the Scriptures cannot be inspired by God, and it is not necessarily true. Now, now just think about that. None of the promises made in Scripture can be relied on. If there is no God, none of the promises in Scripture can be relied on. The promise of God's abiding presence, you can forget that. That God is with you, that He's going to uh, be before you and help you and guide you, and He's going to be with you through the valley of the shadow of death and through all your problems. You can forget that. That promise just can't be relied on. If there is no God, there is no God to be with you through the troubles in your life. The idea that all things work together for good, you can forget that. The idea that, well, something good is going to come out of this? No, nah, yeah, you know, mm-mm. that might. <laughs> but there is no God who's working in your life to produce good things even out of trial. Now that, you can just forget about that. The promise of the resurrection, uh, the hour is coming in which all that are in the tombs will hear His voice and come forth? Mm, no. Can't rely on that. You know, if there is no God to make that promise come to pass, well then that promise is unreliable. Some to a resurrection of life? No. Can't rely on that promise. The promise that there is reserved for you an inheritance, reserved for you in heaven? No. Can't rely on that. The idea that our loved ones have gone on to be with the Lord and we will ourselves be with Him, that we'll join them with the Lord and we'll be with the Lord in that way forever. First Thessalonians 4 verse 17, no, can't rely on that. No, no, if there is no God, the Bible is not the Word of God. And the promises of the Bible are uh, just can't be relied on. Nothing more than wishful thinking. We're alone in the universe, heading nowhere, with no hope throughout all eternity. That's an encouraging thought, isn't it, you know? All alone in the universe, going nowhere, no hope for any any kind of future. If there is no God, that's that's the implication, that's the consequence. Secondly, if there is no God, there will be no ultimate justice executed against evil. You see, scriptures teach us that we are headed to a day of judgment when all people will be held accountable for what they've done. Even the secrets of men will be revealed in the judgment." We understand this. There are lots of passages that suggest this. Romans chapter 2 is a case in point. Verse 16, there will be a day when, Paul says, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Well, the passage I really want to focus on is Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. That God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. Okay? Righteousness is going to be the standard. And, or we might say justice. Justice is an element of righteousness. God is going to judge the world and execute righteousness, set things right. Execute justice on that day. You see, if there is no God, there will not be such a day. And if there is no judgment day, that means every person that has harmed a child, every person that has harmed a child and not been caught gets away with it. (laughs) Every person that's abused a woman is gonna get away with it. Never have to face ultimate justice. Every person that calls up Older people, vulnerable people, takes their money from them, they'll all get away with it. Then They'll never have to be held accountable for what they do. Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin, Mao will never answer, never face justice to a higher power for their crimes. If there is no God, there is no day of judgment, and there is no justice. Thirdly, if there is no God, there is no standard for morality. See, morality is founded upon the character of God. What is right is right because it's consistent with the character of God. What is wrong is wrong because it's inconsistent or contrary to the character of God. You remember passages like 1 Peter chapter 1, You will be holy, why? For I am holy. And then in 1 John 2, Uh, 4 and verse 7 that we are to be uh, righteous as He is righteous. That should be chapter 3 and verse 7. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as He is righteous. The Scriptures teach us that we are made in the image of God. Genesis 1 verse 26 and 27 and Jesus confirms that as well. That we were made, remember, have you not read that He made them in the beginning? Jesus endorses the Genesis account of creation. We're made in the image of God. And as a result of that, we are to reflect or to imitate Him, our Father. So Paul says, Ephesians 5 verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. If we are His children, if we are made in His image, we are to imitate Him. And so our standard of right and wrong is rooted in, somehow we might say something like organically connected to the nature of God. But if there is no God, there is no standard for morality. There's no standard for right and wrong. Just kind of do whatever you you want to do. Now, we could attempt to establish a standard. (laughs) We might say, well, we really ought to do the loving thing. We ought to love each other. And and we really ought to, uh, uh, do first of all, do no harm to others, but, but really do good to others. That's what we ought to do. We can try to establish a standard of right and wrong. Do the loving thing. Don't do harm. Do good to others. But without God to establish it, any standard is arbitrary and without ultimate basis. So let's say, well, we ought to do the loving thing, but if a person doesn't want to do the loving thing, (laughs) or or we really ought to act in the best interest of others, but if a person doesn't want to act in the best interest of others and can get away with acting in his own self-interest, why not do it? not? why why not do it? I mean, who's going to tell you not to? I mean, there's no ultimate basis for morality, there is no, nothing wrong with lying. There is nothing wrong with stealing. There is nothing wrong with cheating. Someone might say, well, you're hurting others when you do those things. So what? That's what I say, so what? Look, I'm going to get mine. And I, I'm not responsible for how that affects you. Now, yeah, that's, that's your responsibility. Now you go about getting yours. If you can get yours, you get yours. But I tell you what, I'm going to get mine. And I don't really care what effect that has on you. Why why not live that way if if there is no God? If there is no God, we are reduced to being brute beasts. A person may choose to act nobly or altruistically or philanthropically, but there's nothing that says he ought to other than just social human convention. If he doesn't want to uh, live according to that, so what? There's, there is no standard that says a philanthropic behavior is better than those who cho- choose to act otherwise. If our culture in mass rejects belief in God, we're in big trouble. We're in trouble. It's going to be bad. And the final point I'll make is that if there is no God, Jesus is not the Son of God. See, the Scriptures teach us that Jesus is the Son of God. Maybe no better passage to illustrate that than John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14 says, Jesus is the Son of God. He is one of three persons in the Godhead. He came to earth and dwelt among us. He went to the cross and made atonement for our sins. He paid the ransom. He was the propitiation for our sins. He made the necessary sacrifice to atone for sin. No ordinary human being could do this, only God Himself. And as a result, we are reconciled to God. As a result of Jesus, the Son of God's sacrifice on the cross, we can be reconciled to Him. Second Corinthians chapter five, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. But you see, if there is no God, Jesus is not God's Son, and we are still in our sins. Oh, someone might say, well, you know, if there's no God, there is no sin. And when you say we're still in our sins, we say if there is no God, that really doesn't make good good sense. But I would suggest we we know better than that, don't we? we? We know better than that. We know that we've done wrong. We know that we haven't done what we ought to do. We know that we've done what we shouldn't have done. In one way or another, and when there is no God, even though we seek forgiveness and we seek satisfaction in some way, but if there is no God, ultimately we live with the guilt that weighs on our conscience until the day we die. <laughs> if there is no God, Jesus is not the Son of God. Well, maybe this sermon doesn't prove the existence of God. I'm wouldn't be so high minded as to think I've settled the question for all humanity for the rest of time. It only makes us aware that there are consequences of saying there is no God. It's similar to what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Remember in that passage Paul says, now there are some of you who are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Now I want you to think about the consequences of that statement. If Jesus has not been raised from uh, if there is no resurrection of the dead, Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. if Jesus hasn't been raised, well then these are the consequences. We're still in our sin. Our preaching is vain. Your faith is vain. The loved ones who have gone on are not with the Lord and so forth. And no, no doubt Paul is thinking, you know, maybe when I, when I talk about the consequences of their of what they're saying, that will make them rethink what they're saying. And and that's the purpose of the lesson. Well, you know, if there is no God, the Bible's not the word of the the promises of the Bible, I can't count on them. Well, you know, if there is no God, there is no justice in the world. If there is no God, there's no standard. You know, I hadn't thought about all of that. Maybe I should rethink my position when I say there is no God. So that's what I want us to do. Think this through and think about the consequences of what we're saying. I think sometimes people think, well, you know, I want to be able to do what I want to do, and so I know that God prevents me from doing what I want to do, so what I'm going to do, I'll just erase God, that way I can do what I want. Yeah, well, the consequences are a lot more serious than that, and we need to think about them a little bit. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we're thankful for the opportunity to meet together and to uh, study together. Uh, to worship you and to express our gratitude and our adoration this morning. We pray, Father, that the things we've done here have been pleasing to you. We're thankful, Father, that you've made yourself evident to us that if we're open, if our eyes are open and our minds are open, well, then the, the evidence that you are is all around us. Everywhere we see the world, everywhere we see order, Everywhere we see those things, we see your handiwork. And Father, we're thankful that that you've revealed yourself to us in that way. We're thankful that you've revealed yourself to us in the Word, that you've revealed your will to us, that you want to have a relationship with us. You want us to be your children. And so you've made that possible through the Word that you've revealed. Help us, Father, to see what you would have us to do so that we might have fellowship with you. Our Father, we pray that our faith in you will grow more and more, more and more firm as the days go by. And when we're presented with uh, objections or disagreements, that we'll have the wherewithal to be sure in our faith and be able to present a reasonable rational faith to others as well, so that they might come to know you as we do Our Father, we pray that You'll go with us today, that You'll watch over us, that You'll keep us in Your care, provide the things we need. We're especially thankful for the gift of Your Son that He died for us, that we might have the hope of heaven one day. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. If you're here today and you want to become a Christian, you're not a Christian,